Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. In the 1980 movie, The Blues Brothers, about a quarter of the way into the movie, we find Jake and Elwood being pulled over for running through a yellow light. After pulling over, we find out that Elwood has a suspended license. So, of course, as one would do, he takes off. Jake had just gotten out of prison shortly before that, and as the sirens blare behind them, Jake says to Elwood, quote, First you trade the Cadillac for a microphone, then you lie to me about the band, now you're going to put me right back in jail. Elwood looks over at Jake and reveals the premise of the movie, they're not going to catch us, we're on a mission from God. And what was that mission? Well, to put the band back together, of course. And as they try to reassemble the band, we hear Elwood repeat that line four more times throughout the movie, we're on a mission from God. For some reason, it seems that everyone has some mission from God these days, not so much the one that Christians are told about, you know, in the Bible. No, no, sir, just... Just everyone has one, and, and definitely other missions, extra-biblical missions, missions revealed to them directly from God. On today's episode, first we'll learn about a mission from beyond the grave. Then we'll go ahead and limit that mission right down to something reasonable. And of course, my weekly update on what are clearly my missions from God after the bumper, also not found in the Bible, only in my head, where everyone seems to think God lives and speaks to us personally, just like all the time. So grab your best digging shovel and start searching feverishly for loopholes, because I know for absolute sure and certitude and whatnot that God told me, here we go. Romans 5.12 says, quote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is referring back to Genesis 3.19, when God is pronouncing the curse on man, Adam, for sinning, deciding to listen to Eve and the serpent and eat the fruit rather than follow God's one rule, quote, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And of course, that rule was given to Adam personally by God, found in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, quote, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Though the gotcha revelation pointed out by all those hostile to Christianity is that Adam didn't die right then, did he? Therefore, the Bible's wrong. Well, I mean, the Hebrew is more accurately translated as dying you will die, which means that the physical process of physical death began, but the unobservable spiritual death took place instantly. As Ephesians 2.1 says, quote, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And here we are today. Although there were a number of curses pronounced by God with the first sin, including such as pain and childbirth, right? The one that we always point to is death. And of course, death includes the process of decay and decomposition. For dust you were and dust you shall return. Now for me, I am so very grateful 
for those in the medical field, for those in the veterinarian field, uh, for those that handle and care for the bodies of those that have passed, because I'll be honest, death is gross. I am not good with death. We're all living in the exact time and place that God determined for us before creation began, and I am so thankful that I don't live in a time or place where I'd have to deal with dead things as a normal part of life, because again, gross. Seriously, I, I just don't like death. I don't like the concept of death. I don't like the smell of death. I don't like the decomposition of death. The whole process kind of gives me the creeps. For as much as I love my parents, assuming I'm in the room when one of them passes, I'm not leaning down to give them a kiss on the forehead after they pass. I, I just couldn't do it. Is that wrong of me? As far as humans go, as far as men go, I'm not afraid to admit that I have fears, some irrational, and some things like this just kind of give me the willies. Does that make me less of a man? I mean, probably, but if not that, at least it takes a punch out of my man card, and I'm willing to concede that. Realistically, though, regardless of if we can handle death, we should be disgusted by the fact that death happens, that it even exists. It's an evil, wicked thing that death has to happen at all. However, God uses sin sinlessly. So if the sins of Adam hadn't happened and death hadn't occurred, then resurrection wouldn't be a thing. Unfortunately, just as Adam couldn't have known exactly what it meant to say, dying you will die, we humans are experiential. We can't know holiness without unrighteousness. We can't know life without death. But for as horrible and evil as death is, we're seeing in real time that Satan can twist and distort it even more. Found on, well, just about every news site out there right now, but in our case, Fox News via MSN.com, headline, Missouri Miracle Investigation Launched Into Dead Nun's Body Uncorrupted After Four Years. So the story is regarding Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. She was the foundress of the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. Now, I'm not even going to start to try to pretend to understand what all of this means, but looking it up, the Benedictines are apparently a religious order of the Catholic Church following the rule of St. Benedict. The rule is apparently a book of precepts that was written by St. Benedict of Nursia in 530 AD. This order states in their about section, quote, United with Our Lady at the foot of the cross, the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, seek above all else a life of union with God in prayer as guided by the rule of St. Benedict. Totally consecrated to the Queen of Apostles, we take Our Lady's hidden life at Ephesus as an inspiration for our own. We seek to be what she was for the early church, a loving and prayerful support to the apostles, the first priests, and daily offer prayer and sacrifice for the sake of her spiritual sons. Okay, now this is my problem. This is why I can't make a short-form review on anything. I get, I, I get stuck asking questions and then investigating the questions that I ask, and then I tell you all about it, and hopefully you find something interesting in this. My initial thought was that Mary is not the queen of anything. I know Catholics believe she was, but they believe a lot of things that just aren't biblical, like that Mary was also born sinless. That's who the Immaculate Conception actually refers to, not Jesus, Mary. The problem is that we literally have very little information about Mary in the Bible, and what we know in the Bible is all we know. 
Now, the Catholics have relied on myth, speculation, and claims of visions and revelations in order to fill out their Mariology. So although they have many names and offices for her, the bottom line is that we know Mary was a sinner in need of a savior, just like all other humans. Although I would think the line in heaven would be long to meet her as she was chosen by God to carry his son, the reality is we have nothing in the Bible saying she's any of these offices the Catholic religion claims, including the Queen of Apostles. Well, then I had to ask, what exactly is her hidden life at Ephesus? And again, this is nothing biblical. This her age at death, etc., etc., is all documented from visions by other people claiming revelation from God. This is one of the big problems with Catholicism. The Bible isn't enough. They've built a religion with a base of the Bible, but then a lot of reinterpretation, revelation, mythology, idolatry, etc. One of these revelations was made in 1822, where it was revealed to Catherine Emmerich through a dream or a vision that Mary lived to be 64 years old, that she lived for three years on Mount Sion, three years in Bethany, and nine years in Ephesus, well, at least near Ephesus, with close friends. In fact, this vision revealed that she lived on a road that approached Ephesus from Jerusalem about three and a half hours from the city. The road sloped upward steeply, approaching the city from the southeast, and she lived on a hill in a house on the left side of the road. And the description goes on and on. It's quite the detailed vision. Problem is, not biblical. In fact, not recorded in any historical document anywhere. Back to this nun, Sister Wilhelmina. What exactly has happened here? Well, let's back up just a little bit. She was born in 1924, took communion for the first time at the age of nine. At that time, she had a vision, apparently of Jesus. The account is that, quote, she saw something of him at her first communion. Maybe not very clearly, but she saw he was so handsome. He said, will you be mine? And she said, he is so handsome, how can I say no? Now, I find this to be interesting since the Bible clearly tells us in Isaiah 53 that Jesus, quote, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was created in this male human form the way he was for a specific reason. So if she saw a vision of a very handsome man, why would anyone think it was Jesus? Now, personally, I'd be more apt to say Satan, as we generally think of him as the most beautiful angel, with the dual meaning of the passage found in Ezekiel 28. Now, regardless, they decided it must be Jesus, because it happened during communion, I guess. So at the age of 13, her parish priest asked her if she'd ever thought about being a nun. Well, she hadn't, but she did now, and so that's the path she pursued almost immediately. Fast forward just a little bit at the age of 70, seeing some of the modernization in the Catholic traditions and wanting to follow some of the older traditions, she founded the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, which is apparently best known for chart-topping Gregorian chant and classic Catholic hymn albums. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not wanting to disparage this woman or this order. They're quite possibly wonderful people. I have no idea. But the entire theology is screwed up. As Martin Luther tried to make plain, why not just use the Bible? You know, the actual words of God? Why do we need to have other revelations and visions and mythologies? Eh, but here we are. In Sister Wilhelmina's final months, a woman that took care of her said that, quote, 
Whenever you would talk to her about Our Lady, you could just see that spark. She loved Our Lady so much, and that came through so strongly. Another nun, Mother Cecilia, said, quote, She loved Our Blessed Mother. That's what she would tell everybody coming here. Pray the rosary. Don't forget to pray the rosary. Love the Blessed Mother. She loves you. Okay, anyone? Anyone at all? Are we? Did you catch anything? Nothing about Jesus. See, the Catholic position is that they do not worship anyone but Jesus, but clearly that memo has never been circulated. In fact, the Catholic Ten Commandments are different from the Protestant Ten Commandments. Did you know that? The Protestant Ten Commandments have the second commandment summed up as no idols. The ninth is no lying, and the tenth is no coveting. The Catholics roll idols very loosely from number two into number one, and and say, yeah, it's probably good enough. Of course, everything has to move up then, so lying is moved to number eight, but now we only have the one, so they split it up. Coveting your neighbor's wife is now number nine, and your neighbor's stuff is number ten. They hide or eliminate, depending on how you look at it, the commandment to not worship idols. You can't have that being a prominent commandment while worshiping Mary and the many saints at the same time. So, Sister Wilhelmina died in 2019 at the age of 95 and was apparently buried in a simple wooden casket with no external covering in a non-embalmed state. The casket and her remains were exhumed on May 18th of this year from the simple cemetery on the grounds so as to relocate her to a final resting place inside the chapel. When they opened the casket, and again, I say gross, they found that she had not decayed practically at all. The coroner, the funeral home director, and other experts were amazed at the state of preservation of her body, with no odor, they noted, and this is where we find ourselves today. The Catholic authorities, for lack of a better term, are still analyzing this oddity, but the general consensus is that she is among a small number of incorruptibles. The general process of especially a non-embalmed body is to go through a series of decay, eventually returning to dust, but the bodies of Catholics that seem to defy science and remain in basically the same condition as they were at death are considered to be incorruptible, which is considered a miracle by the Catholic Church. Now, as of recent history, with very advanced tools, there is a greater understanding of ways a body can stay in a preserved state long after death. However, that doesn't mean it's not a miracle to the Catholics, as a miracle has been redefined by the Catholics as something that's improbable, but not necessarily impossible, and could be a result of natural causes. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Well, that's not the definition of a miracle, but okay, they, you know, whatever, they, they make their own choices here. So now, pilgrims are coming from all over the country and probably the world to view the body and hopefully get some miracle of their own. Along with that, the Catholic Church is determining if she should be sainted, as most incorruptibles are. Now, from a religious standpoint, the Catholic faith considers those that are incorruptible to be those that are of the purest faith. Apparently, even the habit that she was wearing was intact, although it and the body had a layer of mold due to moisture, but the lining of the coffin was deteriorated. Hmm. Okay, so I found a list of incorruptibles. And it's a solid list, a lot of people, but really compared to the number of Catholics over the years, it's a very small number. But we also know that the number of exhumed Catholics is probably relatively small. 
And of course, the more modern the individual, the more likely they were embalmed. So the total population of which to find incorruptibles is probably smallish as well. Now, what I did find odd is that there's only one pope on the list of incorruptibles. Now, the Pope is the vicar of Christ, right? Literally the mouthpiece of Jesus here on earth. He is literally supposed to be speaking for Jesus Christ himself. Wouldn't that alone say that they are of the purest faith and thus should be incorruptible? So why is there only one on the list? Now, my next question is, where is this found in the Bible? And shouldn't that be the biggest problem everyone should have here? And the answer is yes, it should be, but it's not even a consideration of, as it seems. My last question, well, last question I'll ask right here in this little section, what about those that aren't Catholics or any sort of Christian at all that are remarkably preserved after death? Does that mean that those individuals are also of the purest faith? Or are they claiming that only Catholics have this possibility for their corpse? Because I think that's a pretty bold, audacious claim if they're making that, and I don't think Catholicism is claiming that at all, to be honest with you. So what do you do with others? Now, when looking up how a body could resist decomposition after death, you can find a, a handful of answers. One has to do with natural processes or environmental conditions. If something exists in the environment that slows or stops bacterial activity, the body will not break down. Another answer I found, this one on grunge.com, was actually pretty interesting. They state, quote, The secret to dead bodies that remain intact after death is corpse wax. Now, what is corpse wax, you ask? Well, they explain, quote, Corpse wax, a thick white substance, grows outward from some bodies and preserves them by shielding them from the natural catalysts of decomposition. The less creepy term for corpse wax is adipocere. According to Atlas Obscura, the substance was first discovered on the remains of children by French scientists who were excavating Paris's Cemetery of Innocence. The formal scientific name came from the Latin words for fat, adeps, and wax, sear. The waxy substance is most likely to form in damp, warm, and alkaline environments when water comes into contact with the soft, fatty tissue of the corpse. This kickstarts hydrogenation, which Lumen Learning explains is what occurs when pairs of hydrogen atoms are attached to compounds. Per Gizmodo, the chemical reaction makes the fatty cells of the corpse harder, which ultimately creates a firm coating around the body to preserve it. This can actually protect the entire body, or maybe just the bones, or even stomach contents. Now, Sister Wilhelmina, they stated, was in a casket that had moisture in it. So is this the explanation for her preservation? I have no idea. They didn't say this was the case, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't. The point in explaining that to you right here is to simply illustrate that there are natural processes that can cause the preservation of a corpse. Okay, now I have one more question. Why are we humans not satisfied with the word of God? Catholics and certain denominations of Protestants alike search for a sign to show us that God is real. Jesus told Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But we want to see. You have people like author Sarah Young with her book, Jesus Calling, who plainly states that the Bible wasn't enough. She needed something more. So her book outlines all of the things that God literally told her. Extra biblical information. And no, no, he didn't. 
I loved Charles Stanley, but one of the biggest issues I had with him was his exhortation to pray and then shut up and let God speak to you. And he meant God literally speaking to you. Well, if words pop into my brain, how do I know if it's God or me? And the answer is, I don't. There's no way for me to know. But Jesus plainly stated that, quote, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. See, we literally have the Word of God in our hands, on our devices, with more study tools, more commentaries than at any other time in history. And it's not enough. People crave a miracle or proof or something, and they don't even think about the biggest miracle of all, salvation. The fact that God came to earth as a man, fully man, fully God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, was brutally murdered, buried, rose again in three days, showing himself to not only the apostles, other disciples, a handful of women closely associated, as well as 500 others at one time, and then ascended back to heaven. And because of this, we, sinful enemies of God, can through repentance and belief receive the free gift of salvation, which saves us from the eternal wrath of God poured out on us in hell and allows us to live with Jesus forever. But rather than see that for the miracle it is, the greatest miracle ever, we look for a well-preserved corpse. Do you know what a well-preserved corpse actually means, though? It means someone died because sin brought death and that someone is still dead and that's it. That's all that means. This well-preserved dead person should show people that death comes to us all eventually. And when we die, we're going to stay dead until Jesus resurrects us, some to eternal life with Jesus, most to eternal torment in hell. This woman, who might have been a wonderful person, should make us think about our mortality, should make us ensure that we are saved as death will come for each of us as well and should cause us to hope that Sister Wilhelmina was saved as well. I don't know if she was. I know from the little I read, Mary seemed to be her deity of choice. Of course, the problem is that Mary is no deity and has no power to save anyone. So don't be deceived by what the world, even the religious world, props up as miraculous. Don't look for extra-biblical signs, for words from God, for visions and revelations. We have the very Word of God at our fingertips. Read that, study that, meditate on that, and let the truth of God flood your heart and mind. There is more in the Bible than we could ever hope to understand fully in infinite lifetimes. Let the dead bury or exhume or venerate or beatify their own dead. For you and I, rest in the fact that the revealed Word of God is more than enough for anyone. If there's one thing we can say about the revolutionary life of George Washington, it's that more than anything, it seems like he just wanted to go home. Washington, in 1752, at about the age of 20 years old, settled into Mount Vernon and started growing his love of farming and landholding. At the end of 1752, he began his military career. In 1758, he resigned his post and was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses, but focused heavily on his new wife, Martha, and running his plantation. In 1774, he was elected to the First Continental Congress as one of the delegates from Virginia. In 1775, he was elected to the Second Continental Congress. Then he was named Commander-in-Chief of the Colonial Military Forces. In 1781, the Revolution ended. Shortly after, Washington resigned and retired to Mount Vernon and his plantation. In 1787, he was virtually begged to lead the Constitutional Convention, which he did not want to do, but he did it in service of his country. After heading back to Mount Vernon, he was unanimously elected to be the first president of the United States. He reluctantly, humbly accepted the position. 
He was hoping that it would be a very temporary position, but as 1793 loomed, the country needed his stable leadership and a steady hand to continue guiding the nation. Again, as 1797 and the third presidential election approached, although urged, he opted to not run for a third term. In fact, in 1799, the governor of Connecticut, Jonathan Trumbull Jr., again urged Washington to run for president at the next election. Washington had a number of reasons for declining that offer. Even at that time, he saw the party divisions and the cutthroat campaigning, and he just didn't want to be a part of that. But Washington had previously promised to not seek unfair power and did not want to be accused of having some concealed ambition. He just wanted to go home to retire. In his farewell address, he wrote the following, quote, The acceptance of and continuance hitherto in the office to which your suffrage have twice called me have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would have been much earlier in my power, consistently with motives which I was not at liberty to disregard, to return to the retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn." The strength of my inclination to do this previous to the last election had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you. But mature reflection on the then perplexed and critical posture of our affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. I rejoice that the state of your concerns, external as well as internal, no longer renders the pursuit of inclination incompatible with the sentiment of duty or propriety, and am persuaded, whatever partially may be retained for my services, that in the present circumstances of our country, you will not disapprove my determination to retire." The impressions with which I first undertook the arduous trust were explained on the proper occasion in the discharge of this trust. I will only say that I have, with good intentions, contributed toward the organization and administration of the government the best exertions of which a very fallible judgment was capable. Not unconscious in the outset of the inferiority of my qualifications, experience in my own eyes, perhaps still more in the eyes of others, has strengthened the motives to diffidence of myself, and every day the increasing weight of years admonishes me more and more that the shade of retirement is as necessary to me as it will be welcome. Satisfied that if any circumstances have given peculiar value to my services, they were temporary. I have the consolation to believe that, while choice and prudence invite me to quit the political scene, patriotism does not forbid it. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me, and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my inviolable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. Sadly, he never really got to retire to his beloved Mount Vernon. Not really. I mean, after being called back into service by President Adams in 1798, Washington then fell ill in 1799. And because of the old doctor's practice of bloodletting, disregarding the young doctor's advice of, you know, not doing that, Washington passed away. 
Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 38 in our look at the founding documents of this country, part 20 of our look at the constitutional amendments. George Washington, due to his exhaustion, his desire to retire to Mount Vernon, and his lifelong reluctance to grab the reins of power for very long, set the precedent of two terms as president. Other presidents after him felt, and some stated, that if eight years was good enough for our first president, then it was good enough for them as well. There was a reverence for the selflessness and sacrifice of George Washington, and for at least a good while after Washington, the men that came after him would not presume to even imply that they were equal or greater than he. Teddy Roosevelt toyed with the idea of a third term in 1908, but due to the so-called Washington precedent, not even a president as popular as he could secure the party backing to mount a run for a third term. Woodrow Wilson, one of the most evil, one of the worst presidents in this country's history, was elected in 1912 and again in 1916. Now, halfway through his second term, starting for the most part in September of 1919, Wilson fell very ill, but he continued to apply himself fully to his agenda. On the morning of October 2nd, 1919, Wilson suffered a massive stroke. He didn't die. We can argue if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but somehow this didn't kill him. His wife, as evil as he and seemingly even more power-hungry, essentially took over the presidency. She never left his bedside or his side at all after that. She wouldn't allow any member of the Congress or his staff or cabinet to see him. Rather, she was the go-between for communication. Speculation is that she was making all the decisions, that Wilson was incapable of making decisions. By December, members of Congress threatened Edith that they needed to see Wilson or else, and she capitulated and let a few members in to speak with him briefly. By February 1920, the press started catching wind of a stroke, but nobody really knew the devastating nature. At this point in time, only Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution had a clause as to what to do with an incapacitated president. If the president were dead or were to resign or was not able to discharge the duties of his office, the vice president would take over, even if that was just temporarily. Well, Wilson wasn't dead. He hadn't resigned. And as far as anyone knew, he was running the country from his bed. Although, as stated, it was Edith making decisions, as we all now know. So Vice President Thomas Marshall refused to take power from Wilson. Wilson was never the same after that, only a shell of a man. Even after he was able to get back to his desk and make appearances and meet with his cabinet, etc., etc., Edith really did most of the communicating and even went so far as to read the bills, make the decisions, then placed the pen in the hand of Wilson while she moved his hand for him to sign the bills into law. Edith, let's call her the first abusive first lady, likely the protege for Dr. Jilly Bean Biden, actually had designs on running Woodrow for a third term, which as we now know would have been her second term as president. The Democrat Party leadership met with Edith privately, and they were very clear that they knew exactly what she was doing, and they threatened to expose her to the country if she even mentioned Wilson running for a third term. Once again, she capitulated, and Woodrow slash Edith's reign of terror ended in 1921. Woodrow met his creator three years later. I'm guessing that that was probably not a, not a very positive meeting. 
The three next presidents comprise 12 more years, and then we get to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. FDR assumed office for his first term as president in March of 1933. FDR is lauded by many as the savior of the nation, deftly, skillfully guiding us through the Great Depression, through World War II, created massive infrastructure, created the benevolent social programs, etc., FDR was another horrible president and one of the main culprits in the absolute disaster that we have today on nearly every front. FDR was the reason that the United States went through a Great Depression, while the rest of the world went through a much shorter, much less painful depression. Put simply, he was yet another evil, power-hungry individual. Well, FDR was the first president to run for, not to mention successfully win, a third term. And then in 1944, a fourth term. He simply believed that without him at the helm, this country would sink to the bottom of the globe. Now, thankfully, he died shortly after beginning his fourth term in April of 1945. Now, that extra super-duper-mega-doppler-maga intro brings us to the amendment we've made it to today, Amendment Number 22. Leading up to the election in 1944, FDR's Republican challenger, Thomas Dewey, stated that he would support a constitutional amendment to limit the president to two terms or eight years. He said, referring to FDR, quote, four terms or 16 years is the most dangerous threat to our freedom ever proposed. He wasn't wrong. Eighteen months after FDR's death, the Republicans took control of the House and the Senate at the midterm elections, and as soon as they convened in January 1947, they prioritized the drafting of an amendment to limit the president to two terms. The prospect of a president fancying himself rather than to be no better than Washington and follow precedent, but to be a king, a monarch, so spooked those in Congress that a month after the new Congress convened, the amendment was put up for a vote in the House and passed 285 to 121, with 47 Democrats voting in favor of it. The Senate, in the same state of panic, worked on their own amendment, independent of the House. Their version differed slightly and passed 59 to 23, with 16 Democrats crossing the aisle. In March, the House agreed to the Senate's revisions and approved it on March 21st to be sent to the states for ratification. So let's read the text of this amendment. It's broken into two sections, but Section 2 could basically be considered boilerplate at this point. Quote, Section 1. No person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president when this article was proposed by the Congress and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which the article becomes operative from holding the office of president or acting as president during the remainder of such term. Section 2. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states within seven years from the date of its submission to the states by the Congress. This is 
pretty cut and dry. You get two terms of four years each. If you happen to take over as president and serve over half of that term that you took over, that counts as one of your two. And this wouldn't apply to anyone in office when passed or ratified, as in it wouldn't kick anyone out of office upon ratification or preclude a sitting president from running more than two terms. This is why Harry Truman was able to run again, even though he had served nearly two entire terms. Now, up to this point, most amendments had been passed fairly quickly through the states. The Bill of Rights took just under two and a quarter years. Then after that, nine out of the next 11 were passed in less than a year, or just slightly over a year in the case of a few of them. The 14th Amendment, however, granting all natural-born humans or naturalized human citizenship in the United States, remember this was right after abolishing slavery with the 13th Amendment, it also tied federal representation to the states following the citizenship law. It disqualified those guilty of treason or insurrection from holding office and defined what debt the federal government would and would not pay for. And this was all a smack in the face of the Confederate states, basically, having just lost the Civil War and having just lost their slave labor. 22 of the needed 28 states actually ratified it in under a year, but a little more teeth had to be baked in for the remaining states to ratify it, placing temporary northern governments in charge of the lingering southern states and making any federal representation contingent on ratifying the amendment. Well, that pushed the remaining needed six states to ratify, but even that took time, and with this amendment needing just over two years to ratify total. I guess, putting ourselves back then, eh, it's understandable. The other long holdout was the 16th Amendment, which established the income tax. <laughs> oh, we're all so happy. About... Now, that one should be the next one to be repealed, but that one took about three and two-thirds years to get passed by the states. There were only seven states that actually ratified it in less than a year, the rest holding out for quite some time. A variety of reasons for this, but eventually it did get passed. The 22nd Amendment now takes the record from the 16th, at less than a month shy of four years to ratify. On March 21st, 1947, it was submitted to the states. Maine and Michigan were the first states to ratify the amendment just 10 days after it was sent to the states. Side note, FDR's last Republican challenger, Thomas Dewey, yeah, he was born in Michigan, just saying. A total of 21 states out of the 36 needed ratified the amendment in under a year, with New York... FDR's home state being the 21st. From that point, it took nearly three more years to get the last 15 states needed. It was almost a year between the 21st state and the 22nd state to ratify it. But finally, on February 27, 1951, Minnesota became the 36th and final state needed to ratify the amendment. Five more states then ratified it within a few months. As always, let's look at the other states, shall we? Oklahoma and Massachusetts rejected it. They were for this country to be ruled by a king, apparently. <laughs> Traitors. Yeah, I don't know why they rejected it, actually, but for whatever reason, they felt that the president shouldn't be term-limited. And then Arizona, Kentucky, Rhode Island, Washington, and West Virginia uh, just said, screw you guys, to the whole thing. Uh, they didn't even take a vote on the amendment. They just ignored it, I guess. This amendment has been uh, pretty controversial over the years, with the first attempt to repeal it only five years after it was ratified. Since then, there have been over 50 resolutions trying to repeal the amendment. Additionally, Harry Truman, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump have all spoken about getting rid of this amendment. Now, to me, I think the states that rejected or ignored it are actually more logical. I think they're wrong, but at least they're consistent what should have happened concurrently, in my humble but obviously correct opinion, is that they should have term-limited 
everyone in the federal government, the House members, the Senate, and the president. In fact, personally, I'd go farther and term limit citizens to a total number of years within the structure of the federal government. So whether it's the House, the Senate, the president, an advisor, the press secretary, a member of cabinet, I don't know what the total number should be, but for each year you get a punch on your card. When the card fills up, congrats, you're a private citizen again. At the bare minimum, if we aren't going to term limit the walking corpses in the Congress, why would we do it to the president? I mean, the president is not supposed to be the king. He's not supposed to be the most powerful branch of government. We're supposed to have a system of checks and balances, which we sort of have, you know, until we don't. But basically what happens is that the decrepit zombies in the Congress set the agenda and the direction. The president does as he's told for the most part. And so we have lifelong individuals in the direction setting bodies, but a term limited president. I mean, pick a side. All should be term limited or none should be term limited. This is what the Convention of States has been working on for the last few years, and they're getting closer. When they get the authorization from enough states, they can crack open the Constitution for very specific amendments and send it for ratification. Term limits on Congress and a balanced budget are, I believe, the two amendments they're working toward. So, what do you think? Should presidents be term limited? What about the Congress? Or all federal public employees? Or none of them? Reagan felt that term limiting a president actually infringed on the democratic rights of Americans to choose who they wanted for president. Well, you can't argue with that theory. Plus, you know, Reagan. So we know he's right, right? Of course, Bill Clinton felt that being able to be president as many terms as you want should be fine, but you should be limited to a maximum of two consecutive terms at a time. So as long as you have a break between eight years and the next term, it would be good. His reasoning was that people live longer now than they did when the Constitution and even when this amendment was written. Well, I mean, I get what he's saying there. Not sure I agree with his reasoning, though. Either term limit or don't. That's what I think. Now, Donald Trump didn't give a reason. He just said in 2019 that he'd serve for 10 or 14 years. Well, first of all, neither of those are multiples of four. So, you know, I mean, math is hard. And second of all, turns out uh, four. That was his number, actually. Just just the four. Now, maybe more coming up. Maybe not. I don't know. But as of now, um, four. Not, not 10 or 14. Just... Just the four. Anyway, that's the 22nd Amendment. And that brings us to the end of another segment in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Only five amendments left to go. But for now, we'll just say, uh, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, I'm back. I'm not going to claim the, uh, and better than ever part, just the I'm back part. My nephew, and now... I guess she's my new niece, right? Brandon and Alyssa had a wonderful wedding, a great reception, and ran off on their honeymoon. A link to their itineraries in the notes. That's not entirely true, or actually true at all. And although it was a great time with family, a great event, it also came with great calories that tasted great and a great disruption to my normal routine. And totally worth it. So let's just jump into these updates for weeks 20 and 21. I think that's where we left off. So starting with weight. Hey, what's that over there? 
Oh, okay. Well, it's gone now. Oh, man. All right. Where was I? All right. Page is red. <laughs> now, I'll be honest. That's what we do here, right? So from week 19 to 20, I lost nothing, but I gained nothing. I got some workouts in, but I also overate, so it kind of canceled each other out. If nothing else, I'll make myself feel better by saying, well, now I have an idea of what I can do to maintain my weight when I hit my goal eventually. From week 20 to 21, eh, I'm theoretically up 2.6 pounds, which I'm pretty sure about three quarters of that is Olive Garden cheesecake and Olive Garden itself. But honestly, I really won't know where I'm at until next Tuesday. Uh, maybe even the next Tuesday after that. After a couple days of driving, after overeating, etc., etc., I need to give a week or, like I said, possibly two to kind of calm things down and get back to some normalcy, which I'm not there yet, I'll be honest. But that said, taking the numbers that I've got, I'm now actually off my goal pace by 2.1 pounds overall with a weight loss of 29.4 pounds over the 21 weeks or an average of 1.4 pounds lost per week with a goal of 1.5. I clocked in at 185 pounds last Tuesday, so it's not like I've lost all my progress, but it's never fun to see that, even though I did expect it. Now, this week so far, like I said, has been kind of meh, and it's hard to mentally get back to where I need to be. I'll get there, though. Don't worry about it. But for right now, my weight loss goal is in a solid red because I need to get back on track and get to my goal. I don't think there's any way I could hit 175 pounds by my annual July 4th trip, where I'll once again gain at least a few pounds, but maybe by my trip in August to see family. I should be able to do that. There should be no reason I can't do that. I just need to get back at it, which is always easier said than done. We're going to skip pages read for just a moment. Bible reading. So from week 19 to 20, it was routine as normal, mostly. Not quite the same pace I've been on, but ahead of my goal pace, so that was good. But as I said, my routine always falls apart when I'm on vacation, and this trip was a whirlwind. We had a day-long drive, including picking up a few nails in a tire, making a slow leak, and adding getting a new tire to my list of things to do uh, during a very quick, busy week. Then errands, family time, wedding stuff, wedding stuff, family time, and then a drive. It was pretty much nonstop. And with Bible reading, and I'm guessing you can probably identify, I can't do this as like a last thing before bed type of thing, unless I want to fall asleep with either my face in the Bible or the Bible on my face. It's a... Uh, Easier, let's be honest, to read one of the lighter books uh, in this type of a scenario. Sorry, maybe I'm a bad person, but that's the truth. Anyway, I didn't get any Bible reading done on this trip, so that's a week of paganism from week 20 to 21, which of course drops my percentage compared to my goal uh, and probably drops my standing in Christianity, but I'm still just under 150% of my goal, and I'll still be finishing up the yearly Bible by the end of June, so we're all good here. That said, I put this one as a light red just to signify my failure. Now, devotions I did keep up, reading them every morning in weeks 19, 20, 21. So that one just stays a solid green as it's been for most of the year. Okay, pages. If you recall from the week 19 update, I eclipsed my goal of 3,600 pages for the year. So now I'm looking at my pages read over the past number of years to try to take out those records. My next goal is to beat 2021 at 4,317 pages for 19 books read. So from week 19 to 20, I read 190 pages, didn't finish any books, but brought my total to 3,825 pages. 
As I said, with regard to week 21, it was easier for me to grab my lighter book and read that while on the trip. The chapters are only like four or five pages each. The book has solid action, and it's easy to just pick it up and put it down as desired. So I was able to finish the one book, which is book two in the J.B. Collins series by Joel Rosenberg, this one entitled The First Hostage. I read 162 pages over the last week, which brings my total to 3,987 pages and 17 books finished closing in on 2021 fairly quickly. As for this book, The First Hostage, as I said, it's the second of three books in this J.B. Collins series. Again, I would recommend this book and the series, although I'm not quite a quarter of the way through the last book in the series yet. Again, these are political thrillers, a lot of action, a combination of factual events and people and fictitious events and people. It's definitely a page turner, very well written. That said, let me give my critique. And admittedly, this may only be me. Maybe I'm just being picky. This series is written from the first-person point of view of J.B. Collins. He's a middle-aged foreign correspondent and war reporter, so he's been around to some degree, seen and done a number of things in order to write his stories for the New York Times. The problem with having this first-person point of view is that in order for us to know anything about anything, we have to get it from him. And that means that he must be in the middle of nearly everything, and it means that he's invincible, or else the story ends quite abruptly. So not only is he a reporter, he's apparently smarter than the military intelligence and military officers. He's admittedly only really hunted with regard to guns, but he's apparently very proficient with controls and rapid magazine changes in guns that he's never handled, and he has no problem shooting three round bursts on target from the get-go. As someone who once upon a time, long time ago, owned a bump stock for his AR, all of which were tragically lost in the boating incident of the year that that happened, I'll tell you that controlling even a three-round burst for a novice, it's impossible. But he knows all, can do anything, always gets out of bad situations, continues to be the hero, even when on the edge of death, etc., 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 and on and on. And more than once, the action at the climax had to pause while he took multiple paragraphs to lay out the background and the thought process as to his next move, because we have no other way to get this info. It had to happen there. So a split-second decision in the peak of action slowed down to a crawl over one or more pages as he apparently had this thinking and reminiscing time during that split second. It didn't happen more than a few times, but you could feel the story bog down when he did it. And that irritated me. Now that said, I still heartily recommend the books. They're a lot of fun. They're page turners, and likely others aren't as cynical as I, so... Of course, I've probably ruined that now for you. Oh, why did I do that? Ah, oh, stupid, stupid. Oh, well. Anyway, that's the update. The real question is, what will next Tuesday, week 22, bring for weight? And I'd say even more so, week 23. Ah, but we'll get there soon enough. Okay, bye. <laughs>